Author Larry McMurtry has said of our keynote speaker's grasp of the history of country music, quote, if anyone knows more about the subject than Bill Malone does, God help them. <laughs> Bill Malone's interest in the history of country music is deeply rooted in his own past. Growing up on an East Texas cotton sharecropping farm, for him, music was a part of everyday life, in church and at home, heard from family members and through the Malone's battery-powered Philco radio. During his years at the University of Texas in the late 1950s and early 60s, Malone spent his spare time singing at the famed Threadgill's Bar in Austin. When his graduate student advisor heard him sing, he suggested that Malone pursue the study of the history of Nashville music publishing. Well, this proved to be an inspired pairing of lifelong passion with keen historical analysis. Malone's dissertation formed the kernel of his landmark book, Country Music USA. When it was first published in 1968, it was the first general scholarly survey ever on the subject. It has been revised and re-released twice since then. One reviewer called it simply the Bible for country music history. Bill Malone followed that first book with a raft of others that have continued to define the field. They include Southern Music, American Music, Don't Get Above Your Raisin, Country Music and the Southern Working Class, and coming out this June, a new book called Working Girl Blues, The Life and Music of Hazel Dickens. In addition, he produced and annotated the Smithsonian Collection of Classic Country Music. Bill Malone taught for many years at Tulane University and before that at Southwest Texas State and Murray State. He retired from Tulane as Emeritus Professor of History. His work has brought him an impressive litany of recognition. He has been a Guggenheim Fellow. He has delivered the Lamar Lectures at Mercer University, published as Singing Cowboys and Musical Mountaineers, Southern Culture and the Roots of Country Music. He has served as a joint visiting scholar at Duke and the University of North Carolina. And his weekly radio show, Back to the Country, on Madison, Wisconsin's WORTFM, has been on the air for many years and has regularly garnered Listener's Choice Awards. In all, he continues his role as the Dean of Country Music Scholarship, combining, in his own words, the passionate predilections of the fan and with the wary skepticism of the scholar. And I should add, he has demonstrated remarkable stamina because he overcame a nasty bout of the flu earlier this week, determined to be here, and we're very glad he is. Please welcome Bill Malone, who will set the stage for us today with his topic, Patsy Cline and a Changing South from Depression to Postwar Affluence. Now, I'll tell you, it was really touch and go for a while in the last few days. <laughs> um, I was told that uh, I could uh, just send my paper, you know, just don't, don't worry about it, just stay, stay in Madison and get well and send the paper and somebody would read it for me. And I said, that's the catch. I've got to write the paper first. <laughs> and I didn't feel like finishing it. You know, I tend to write books and papers in, in stages, an outline form and then from outline form to, to longhand and then to the computer, back and forth. And so 
give you a little idea of my uh, work habits. But I'm really pleased that we were able to, to get it. I should say, too, though, that one of the reasons why we were determined to come is that Bobby wanted to meet um, George Hamilton IV. <laughs> so we're here. And one other little um, thing before I get into the paper is the first thing I had to come up with when I agreed to, to do this paper was provide a title. You know, at that point, not quite sure what you're going to say, and, and, you, and you feel like, well, this is going to change over time. The more you write it, it's, it's going to take shape as something a little different. And so the uh, title that was just given is rather cumbersome and rather formal. So I'm going to do that in general. Basically, what I'm going to do today is talk about the context of economic and, and social change in the South during Patsy Cline's life and the, the changing role of country music in that period and how they interrelated with each other. We've gathered here in Richmond to celebrate the life and career of Patsy Cline. Today you'll hear many approaches to this great American singer, so I'll try not to infringe upon or to duplicate anyone else's remarks. If I understand my role correctly, it's to provide context for the contributions that she made and perhaps to raise some questions for all of you to, uh, to ponder. While it's obvious to me that this daughter of Virginia should be honored with a one-day conference by her state's distinguished historical society, and I applaud you for this, it has not always been the fate of working class people to receive this kind of recognition. I don't mind telling you that this son of working class Texas parents is thrilled to see this happen and to have been asked to give it and, and to have been asked to give the opening address. It also seems appropriate in a paradoxical way that this conference is being held in a city like Richmond or Winchester, or Roanoke, or any, any number of other places that might be mentioned, because country music really took shape in the towns and cities of the South, not in the remote hills and hollows of Appalachia or the far-off western plains that have always fired our romantic souls. It was the ever-developing technology of the cities, marked first by the emergence of radio and recording in the 1920s, that disseminated the grassroots styles of rural America. Without radio and recording, such music would never have coalesced into the commercially marketable entity now known as country music. And by the way, the music wasn't even called country until as late as 1949 or 1950. The term I grew up with was hillbilly. The towns had the radio stations the businesses and other commercial entities that wanted their pro products hawked by the radio stations. Emerging urban centers had the movie houses that provided glimpses of exotic sounds and dances, such as the ones done by Shirley Temple that so thrilled the very young Patsy Cline. Automobile, automobiles that quickened the pace of change and the department stores that peddled sheet music, instruments, Edison cylinders, Victrolas, and the old 78 RPM records 
long before real music stores came into existence. Working class Southerners, black and white, had persistently cast their lot with the newly developing towns that emerged in the South in the late 19th century in the wake of railroad expansion and industrial development of all kinds. These newcomers provided the core audience for the hillbilly bands that emerged on local radio stations throughout the region and who played in country schoolhouses, churches, tents, and movie theaters in an ever-widening arc of personal appearances. The radio hillbillies brought diversion and entertainment into the lives of hardworking people, provided an, an important security link to the past that they'd so recently abandoned, and helped them to find community and assert identity in a new environment that often seemed alien or forbidding. The musicians, in short, brought both fantasy and reality into the lives of emotionally needy people, transporting them with their songs and stage personas to realms of romance, but also speaking with clarity to them about their current problems and strains and dreams. Patsy Cline grew up in one of these hardworking but fractured families, and in fact, had to leave school to become a wage worker when she was still a very young teenager, around 13 or 14 years old. I believe that's a major key to understanding her drive and ambition. The contours of her life and her evolution as a singer parallel the major transformations that were reshaping the cultural moorings of her class and region. Just as we should reject any romantic notions about country music's alleged origins in the remote and pristine hollers of Appalachia or in the distant and lonely western plains, we should also reject the equally fanciful belief that its musicians and fans were nothing more than yokels or remnants of some pure Anglo-Saxon or Celtic culture. Purity was not their defining element. And although many of them had been farmers, it's not far-fetched to argue that a substantial number of them embraced life and labor in the city along with the fruits that a capitalist consumer culture offered. Patsy Cline's all-too-brief life took place at one of the most important intersections of cultural and economic development in the South's history, when three centuries of rural dominance gave way to urban and industrial ascendancy. She was born in 1932 in the hamlet of Gore, about 50 miles north of Winchester, Virginia, at one of the low points of the Great Depression. She died 31 years later in 1963 at a time of great expectations for herself and for her country. She could hardly have been born at a more propitious time for a strong woman, sure that her talents would take her further than her humble origins might have suggested. The major catalyst for change, World War II, had no less than revolutionary consequences for the South and its people. Movement, both economic and geography, became the crucial fact of their lives. You know, I've always struck by the, the, the theme of uh, place in Southern literature. One great writer after another, on, on up to William Faulkner, talk about how important the identification with place has been to uh, the Southern people. And it's affected their outlook on life and what they've written. And of course, country music is just full of songs about the old home place and the old country church. 
and about the, the, uh, the lingering in, the, in one's memory of the old home place. But I think one point that needs to be made here is that for many, many thousands of Southerners, particularly working-class Southerners, there was no one central place that lingered in, in their past because movement was an overwhelming fact in the lives of uh, tenant farmers and textile workers and a lot of other poor Southerners. I know it's true, certainly true of my own family. So when I hear people talk about place, I say, yes, the, uh, place is important, but place tends to be more in, in, in the mind than it was in actual fact. Uh, that's the reason I think why, why it appears so often in literature and song, because it was not always an, an absolute uh, fact of reality. Many thousands went into America's armed forces. Many moved north or west to industrial centers outside the South. Countless others remained within the South, but moved from the farms and into nearby villages, and from there into bigger cities. Though less heroic than the idea of a migration from the deep South to Chicago, or from, or from Appalachian, Kentucky to the hillbilly ghettos of Detroit, these shorter internal moves within the South, say from the East Texas farms to Houston, or from the small rural towns of Georgia into, into Atlanta, tell us more about the South's post-war history than those uh, dramatic migrations do. The geographical relocations of Southern working people took them away from the land, from agriculture to blue-collar work in mines, mills, oil camps, and defense factories and shipyards. Their children and grandchildren have moved persistently into white-collar service and technical occupations. Like many of the South's working folk, Patsy's family first made a tentative step toward relocation, going first to Tiny Gore and then to Winchester. Uh, I've, in fact, I've heard, and some, some of the participants this afternoon can correct me if I'm wrong, but I've heard that Patsy and her family moved at least 19 times before she was 14 years old. Of course, her own career took her much further, to places like Nashville and to that overgrown southern country town, Washington, D.C. <laughs> People responded or adjusted to change in various ways, depending on age, gender, race, ethnicity, education, income, and other variables. Most people who moved expected or hoped for an economically better way of life. At least in the beginning, many may have assumed that otherwise nothing much would change. That is, the old social hierarchies that had promoted the illusion, if not the fact of stability and promised, and, and which also promised security in their departed communities, would remain intact. I'm, I'm referring to such things as ma masculine dominance, white supremacy, the unquestioned obedience of youth. But in spite of such expectations, all of these assumptions had been challenged, implicitly or, or explicitly, by the moves to town, the growing availability of money, the beckonings of the consumer culture, and all of the loosened restraints prom uh, promoted by the war. The old order, of course, did not readily surrender. The resulting conflicts between old and new, emerging dramatically in the late 1950s and 1960s, wrought major consequences for the South and for the nation. The South that we 
now know was born in the crucible of those years running roughly from 1946 to 1963. The Black Revolution, the politicization of religious fundamentalism, militant stirrings among both women and youth, as well as the emergence of a youth consumer culture, and of course the rise to hegemony in the region of the Republican Party, at least as expressed in national politics. So Patsy Klein grew up in um, one of the most crucial periods of Southern history. And by the time things were over, if they are, ever are completely over, the South was a different place. An old order had completely given way to a new, or had it. <laughs> While it may be legitimate to speak of the long-term consequences that came to the South in the wake of the social upheavals of the 1940s, we should nevertheless be aware that clean breaks with the past almost never occur. And unqualified embraces of the new do not come easily or immediately. Residences and occupations changed, but cultural attitudes often lagged far behind, allowing people to fall back on traditional supports as coping mechanisms, such supports as individualism, the family, religion, politics, and as we've seen, music. But even these traditional forces remain unchanged by the, by the movement to the city. All of them had long been in transition or even under assault by the forces of modernism. And I can cite you only one, one example of what I'm talking about when, to, to uh, warn us about um, making the great leap to say that the, the, all, all the old institutions, all the old traditions just somehow totally disappeared or totally changed once the, the city became paramount. That of course, the example I'm thinking about, and, and, I, and I will talk about music a little later on, but what I'm referring to now is religion. I think there are many people who presume that the old-time religion would not survive the move to the city. Religious fundamentalism, given such a damaging blow, it, it was believed, by the Scopes Monkey Trial of 1925, could never recover from the humiliation. But look at it now. Old-time religion is a paramount force in American politics because it's learned how to live with modernism. It's learned, it's learned to embrace the fruits of technology and make them uh, its, its own. Same, same is true with music, as we'll uh, say in just a second or two. The first generation or two, though, who removed to town built a culture that was a composite of old and new, and the generations that have come since have made uh, their own changes, and we can, we can determine to, to, to what degree the old has been sloughed off with this uh, embracing of the new. So let's, let's talk about music now for a while. As we all know, Patsy Cline's music has transcended most categories, and some have even argued that country is too limiting a description to affix to her. I meet people all the time who adore Patsy's music but yet express surprise that anyone would call her country. But though she had a voice that reached far beyond the traditional country audience, country music is the music that Patsy grew up with, and she considered herself to be a country singer. 
She was a passionate advocate of country music. Along with the music of the church, with which it was intimately intertwined, country was the form most accessible to her. On local radio stations and honky-tonks, on jukeboxes, and in occasional public appearances, including the newly fashioned package shows, as they were called in the 1950s. That shows where it send uh, entertainers of, of, of different styles and different descriptions out to, to give concerts. And you may recall that, that one of Patsy's first uh, invitations to come to Nashville and to try it for the Grand Ole Opry came when she went to one of these package, package shows headed by the uh, impresario Wally Fowler, who was both a gospel and a country singer. As I'll point out in just a few minutes, country music was folk. You can put that in quotes if you like. It was folk in just about every sense of the word, not only because it frequently drew upon traditional or inherited songs, but also because it could be performed by regular people like you and me down at the local VFW hall or church pie supper as well as by seasoned professionals on radio and television. Country music was accessible, there was a market for it, there were places to play, and Patsy embraced them. She began to launch her campaign to win country music acclaim during the era that many would call its golden age. It certainly was to me. I'm, I'm talking about the period from 1946 to, to the mid-1950s. Not only is, in, of course, in my case, that's, that's the music I think of when I think of the, of the great country singers, the great country entertainers, but it was, it was the, the period that marked country music's first great surge to commercial success. It, it, it began to, to break free from the constraints of scarcity and rationing imposed by the war to become a thriving commercial form with audiences found increasingly across the world. Radio stations everywhere, large and small, began featuring country music, with the feature of, of such coverage being the Saturday night barn dances on radio. And big, big cities and small everywhere had these, these barn dances. I can remember the Big D Jamboree in Dallas, the Saturday night shindig in the same uh, city, the Cowtown Jamboree in Fort Worth, the Wheeling Jamboree up in Wheeling, West Virginia, the Crossroads Follies in Atlanta, Georgia, the midday merry-go-round in Knoxville, and you may, may remember, uh, well, of course, uh, the Louisiana Hayride in Shreveport. You, you probably remember uh, your own local uh, barn dance. It's amazing how many terms they could come up with to describe the same thing. Shindigs, barn dances, jamborees, hoedowns. But something that people could look forward to every Saturday night. This was the, still the age of live radio. Not only on Saturday night, but early, early in the morning, when it was presumed the only people who got up early enough to turn on the radio were, were farmers and truck drivers and small town people. Maybe at noon, when, when Daddy came home from work, was ready to hear a gospel program by the Chuck Wagon Gang or someone like that. Nashville was already on the march. Nashville was already gathering its, uh, its forces to become the great music center that it, that it is now. But it was not alone. Nashville had many competitors, and Ascendancy could have, could have uh, developed in other places if 
I guess if local uh, advertisers and businessmen had made the same kind of uh, effort. Uh, George Hamilton IV, just a little bit later on, I think not, not too long after my talk today, George Hamilton's going to talk to, talk to you about the, his days, his memories of Washington, D.C. You, you may not recall, but Washington, D.C. was a thriving center for country music in the 1950s, headed mainly by Cunny B. Gay and by Jimmy Dean, who, whom you'll hear tonight. But the same was true in places like Cincinnati and Dallas and Los Angeles. great hunger for music and and when people could not perform live there were radio there were transcriptions that had been introduced in the mid 1930s you could put your uh, early morning show on a transcription disc leave it behind you could go out on the road and stay for a few days but they would they would play your shows while you were gone and people thought you were there in the studio or you could lease your transcriptions to radio stations around the country and they could be heard there Little by little, people with, uh, men with great personalities who could relate to the musicians and to the fans began to spend the old 78 RPM records, then after 1945, the little 45 RPMs, and then the 33 and the third LPs, which came out in uh, uh, 1950. These were the disc jockeys. Disc jockeys quite often tended to be people who had been musicians, so they knew the uh, trade that they were promoting. They, they talked in conversational tones with folksy demeanor, with, with everyday speech, and with hay hayseed humor to people who still wanted to hear that. Because remember, this is a generation that's moved to town, but it's still not, yet it, not quite ready to embrace every aspect of the town, still clinging as, as strongly as possible to the society, the culture they left behind. And the disc jockeys provided that link. They permitted people to come into the studios and, and, and play live. They played their records, they read, they read fan mail, they gave the advertisements. I'm surprised that there were more disc jockeys that were in mental institutions than there were because th their jobs were so stressful. I have a radio show now, but, it, but it's nothing compared to what th those old timers had to go through. I could sit back and talk about this music in a historical way, and I have an engineer who puts the CDs into the CD racks. There's a proliferation of uh, small record labels, like the one that uh, Patsy Cline first signed with before she went with, uh, with DECA. There were uh, outlets for would-be musicians all over the country, and a feeling that uh, people were still close to the business, they still had their destiny in their own hands, they could still shape it to a certain degree. And over 400,000 jukeboxes do you remember jukeboxes? <laughs> uh, little by little, these um, jukebox corporations like Rocco and Seberg and the others uh, improved their operations. They made it possible to play more and more records. And so one could have the intimacy of, of, of playing music for uh, dances or while you had a cup of coffee or a Saturday night get-together. But you'll also gather around the, the, the uh, disc jockey and, and, and not only embrace the music, but embrace the corporate culture that pr presented it to you. The, the, the jukeboxes were beautiful. The, the openly displayed mechanisms and with chrome and neon just seemed to be uh, a signal success 
for, for, for American capitalism after the war at a time when people were trying to get back on their feet and trying to restore the, the economy. The, the, the jukebox, was, along with the automobile, were the most immediate examples of uh, uh, American recovery. And more important than that, the, the jukeboxes made it possible for this music to, uh, to flourish and to gain more and more uh, adherence. This was the era of Eddie Arnold, Hank Williams, and all the other Hanks. Lefty Frizzell, Red Foley, Slim Whitman, Carl Smith, Webb Pierce, Rose Maddox, Wanda Jackson, Charlie and Arthur, all the names that still strike what? Just uh, joy in my heart. They, these are the people I still play on my radio show. <laughs> I'll, I'll have nothing to do with Garth Brooks and those folks. <laughs> Patsy's unyielding ambition would have been heightened by the visibility and acclaim won by her working class contemporaries, the people I've just mentioned. And she would have been further emboldened by the emergence of women who were beginning to compete with men on more than equal terms. While it's true that many of these women often perform with supporting groups, as in the case of Rose Maddox and her brothers, and that well into the 50s, one still heard female vocalists referred to as girl singers on whatever show to which they were attached, women were building identities of their own. Although Kitty Wells never truly broke free from the image of a housewife, who sang only during her spare time, and who in fact always deferred to the stage leadership of her husband, Johnny Wright, Kitty nevertheless evoked pride among Patsy and other women who hoped for, who hoped for careers of their own. Patsy and her sisters in country music strived to emulate Kitty's success without standing in anyone else's shadow. Liberation in country music, however, has gradually came in small, has, come, has gradually come in small steps. And I'll leave it to the discussants whom you'll hear for the rest of the day to determine how well Patsy controlled her own career during her de dealings with Owen Bradley and other uh, record producers. Like the working class culture that had produced and sustained Patsy's ambitions, country music was torn by contradictions and often competing interests. It was a music with one foot in the past and one in the present. It was a fusion of old and new. Its stylistic diversity far outstripped anything heard today in the music and certainly on top 40. And this is something younger people may not, may not recall, but back in those days, back, back in the day, this gold, what I call the golden age of uh, country music, fans did not make distinctions among the styles that they heard. It didn't matter whether it was what we now call the Western swing of Bob Wills or the cowboy music of Gene Autry or the pop country sound of Eddie Arnold or the honky-tonk sound of Hank Williams. They didn't use those, those uh, descriptive terms. They were all country. In fact, they were all just hillbilly, and they often performed together. Distinctions... Stylistic distinctions, or the attempt to, to, to attach labels to certain styles of music, did not come, really, until the late 1950s and early 60s. That was in the wake of the rock and roll invasion of American musical culture and the attempts made by Nash Nashville to respond to what the, it perceived to be the rock and roll threat. 
And I, in fact, the labeling, I think, came more in response to uh, the latter than it did to the former. A lot of people resented the efforts to, to, to create a music that was uniform and uh, homogenized and uh, pretty much the same. And so the ideas about purity and about what is real and what isn't real began to gradually seep into the public consciousness. So today, we, we use such terms as honky-tonk and western swing and bluegrass and brother duets and any number of other terms you can come up with. But that's a fairly recent uh, usage. This, then, was the world of country music that wit witnessed Patsy's uh, remarkable ascent to fame. It was a body of music and a business strongly shaped by its working class origins, but desperately determined to succeed in an increasingly urban and middle class society. Older listeners sought the security of what they already knew. Younger fans sought innovation and excitement. And let me say one more aside. Back in my day, I, 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 may, I may come from the very last generation in America that liked the same music that its parents liked. <laughs> but things happened rapidly and, and, and almost dramatically uh, bewildering fashion after that time. Recognizing what Elvis Presley and his young cohorts had done to uh, American music, that is, they, they, they took listeners away from the more traditional styles, record producers in Nashville and elsewhere, elsewhere began looking for something that could draw these listeners back, hopefully, particularly as they got older, maintain the loyalty of uh, older people, and at the same time, reach out to a brand new audience that perhaps had never listened to country music in the first place. So led by people like Owen Bradley with DECA, Chet Atkins with RCA, the record producer in, in Nashville began looking for, for a sound and a style that would straddle all these fences. It would attract young people. It would satisfy the old. It would embrace certain features of rock and roll because rock and roll was here to stay. But it would still somehow maintain the ambience and the feel, and to use that favorite country music word, the sincerity of country music, while all these changes were being made. So little by little, you began to see fiddles disappear from country recordings, the pedal steel guitar faded away, and what was left behind was either small combos with, with strings and uh, vibra-harps, pleasing, non-threatening instruments, or, or big instruments. Nothing, really, that would uh, be too, too threatening to people who, who didn't want to be identified with uh, raw, rural, or working-class uh, roots. So while finding it, people who could play that music, they also look for singers who could combine those traits. And Owen Bradley felt that he had, he had found the perfect specimen, Exhibit A in Patsy Cline. So I, I hope, I'm, I'm looking forward to some of the talks this afternoon to see what, uh, how her music is, is defined and um, above all, what kind of agency she played in these changes. We know that uh, Patsy you know, clung to uh, 
a lot of old styles, old songs, as long as she could. She fought against some of the new. She loved to wear her cowgirl costumes, even though Owen Bradley and the others said, Patsy, get rid of those cowgirl <laughs> suits. That's not what they said. This new modern audience wants to hear. Wear something sedate like a, like a nightclub singer would wear. <laughs> but my, my question to the participants who are coming along this, this afternoon is, what role did Patsy play in these changes? To what degree did she resist? Because was she, was she a, um, just a product of somebody else's decisions, or was there a, a composite role played here? But her immense gifts and untimely death created a legacy that grew beyond compromise and became the legend and promise that inspired Loretta Lynn and the many young, men, and the many young women who have succeeded to shape their own sweet dreams. So that's uh, pretty much what I have to say. <laughs> Thank you.